0: Good morning, friends. We have a wonderful, wonderful text for us uh, this morning that is likely very familiar to you. But if you want, turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Luke. We're going to read several verses together. Uh, As you're turning there, by way of introduction, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the daily routine in the Kelly house. Now, you probably have a daily routine that's similar to the one that we have in our home. It's routine that probably involves breakfast in the morning. Maybe you read your Bible in the morning. You check the news. Probably coffee is involved with your daily morning routine. That's the way it is for us. But there's something else that we have done for as long as I can remember, that's more practical in nature. And that is that everybody wakes up at relatively the same time. We have a rule in our house that breakfast starts at 6.30 a.m. And if you're not at the breakfast table at 6.30, that means you do the dishes for everybody else. So breakfast happens at 6.30, then we read the Bible and we pray together just after that. And then uh, before everybody leaves and goes their separate ways, uh, we always ask the question, what's happening today? It is, the, it is the segment of the morning where we talk about the day. And the reason why we do that is a reason that's probably familiar to you too, especially if you have children or have had children before. You know that when kids get to a certain age, it feels like everybody's going their separate ways in a different direction. And so it becomes important that you just have a general idea about what's happening during the day. So we get to the end of our breakfast and Bible reading time, and somebody declares, let's talk about the day. Now, the reason that we do that is to try and be proactive about all of those things that are going to happen during the day. We need to know who needs rides where, what time people are leaving, what time people are coming home. It's an effort to be proactive with all of the details that are going to come. Now, the problem with that is that in as much as you try to be proactive at the start of every day, stuff happens every day. So you can make all the efforts in the world to try and be proactive. You can have a family calendar like we do. You can even have a segment of time devoted every morning to let's talk about the day. But stuff is going to happen every day. And most of those things that happen every day are things that happen to you. And when things happen to you, you are immediately moved into a reactive posture despite all of your efforts at trying to be proactive. Cars break down, meetings come up, assignments get made, and suddenly, despite all of your best preparations, stuff happens to you and you're moved from a proactive into a reactive posture. And it happens almost on a daily basis. Now, if you zoom out a little bit, you find the same thing happens at a macro level. That is to say that not just on a daily basis, but in our lives in general, we generally try to be proactive, responsible people that have an eye on what's coming, that have our to-do lists and our calendars all up to date, and yet stuff happens, and it happens to us. And despite all of our proactive attempts to buy insurance policies and to invest in retirement plans and to wear our seat belts and to make sure that we're not eating too much red meat or whatever other proactive policies that we put into our lives on a daily or yearly basis. Stuff still happens to us. And so behind that veneer of all of those attempts to be proactive, we find that we are forced to live much of our lives reactively because things are always going to happen to us. Now, if you take that as a given that we're going to spend much of our lives living in a reactive posture, then you can sort of step back and realize that there are Two broad spectrums in which you can find yourself in that reactive posture. First of all, you can find yourself in a posture of entitlement when things happen to you. Now, when good things happen to you, if you're operating from the perspective of entitlement... Then you think to yourself something like, well, of course that good thing happened to me because I deserve not only for that thing to happen to me, but for a host of other good things to happen to me. In fact, I'm expecting all kinds of good things to happen to me because I deserve all of those things to happen. And then when bad things happen to you, you think to yourself, I can't believe that that thing happened to me. I don't deserve that thing to be happening to me. How could that be happening to me? That's one end of the spectrum. The other posture that you can take when you embrace that much of life is spent living reactively is not the posture of entitlement. It's the posture of stewardship. And if you have the posture of stewardship, you have a very different reaction when things happen to you, whether those things are good or bad. Because if you're operating from a posture of stewardship and things happen to you, whether they are good or bad, you think something like this. Well, this thing has come into my life. It's not something that I planned for or even anticipated, but here it is. And I can't do anything about the fact that this thing has come into my life, whether or not I want to. So the question for me is, how do I best steward that which I cannot change? And the difference between the attitude and posture of entitlement and the attitude and posture of stewardship is faith. And that's one of the things that we see exemplified in the text today. Because among other things that we're going to see today is that something is happening to Mary. Here's what the word of the Lord says in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting could this be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on this humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You can be seated this morning. Luke takes us in this portion of his gospel about 50 or 60 miles to the north of Jerusalem. That's where we left last week if you were here. Luke chapter 1 started in Jerusalem but now has moved to the north to a small village called Nazareth. And the setting of this particular element of the story is very different than the one that we saw last week. Last week, there was an announcement, but that announcement came to a priest in the midst of a worship service at the high holy place of Israel's capital. But this message, the one that we read this morning, this message comes privately to a humble woman in a little rural village out in the middle of nowhere. So the setting is very different, but that's not to say that the two texts, the two passages don't have some similarities because they certainly do, starting with the fact that it was the same heavenly messenger that came to both people. And both of the messages were about babies, and both of the babies that were going to be born were going to be very, very special. And both of the births that the angel told about were going to be miraculous in nature, even though they were miraculous from the opposite end of the biological spectrum. One was going to be miraculous because the parents were far too old to have a child. The other was going to be miraculous because the young woman was far too young, in a sense, to have a child. But even though there are those similarities, the reaction to those announcements are very, very different. Both of these things were happening to people. There were circumstances that were coming into their lives and the reactions are going to be very very different. To bring back the point from earlier, something major is happening to both of the parties. Now the question is how those parties will react. Now, If you read both of the texts, the text from last week about Zechariah and Elizabeth and the text from this week about Mary, when you read them at first, it seems as though the reaction is pretty much the same. If you look back at verse 18 of Luke chapter 1, the Bible tells us that Zechariah gets the news and he asks the angel a question. He says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is along in years. Now, if you compare that to verse 34 in which we just read, Mary too asks a question. She says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And yet, despite what seem to be similarities in those responses, the way the angel reacts is different. In one case, the person who's asking the question is disciplined. This is Zechariah. The text from last week tells us that he's disciplined to the degree that his Speech is taken from him until the child is actually born, so he becomes mute for the next nine months or so. But when Mary asks a question, she's actually answered. And not only is she answered, she's actually acclaimed, approved, applauded. And the difference between those two reactions, and indeed the difference that will make all the difference for us today, is... Faith. Now, this is an important point for us this morning because even though it's pretty unlikely that anybody here is going to receive a physical visit from an angel announcing something miraculous happening to you in the coming days, it's pretty unlikely. But be that as it may, something is going to happen to you today. If not today, then tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, the next day. It's inevitable. Things are going to happen to you. Things you didn't plan for, things you didn't anticipate, things you couldn't have proactively been ready for at all. Stuff is going to happen to you. In fact, probably for most of us in this room, stuff already has happened to you. You didn't intend to be looking for a new career in your 50s, but here you are. You didn't intend to be moving back in with your parents after you graduated from college, but here you are. You didn't tend to embrace your aging parents into your own home because they got sick, but here you are. Things happen to us, and they'll continue to happen to us. Faith is what makes all the difference in our posture with the inevitability of things happening to us because faith moves us from a posture of entitlement to a posture of stewardship. And when faith moves us to that posture of stewardship, there are at least three practical things that change about the way that we respond when stuff happens to us. And we see all of these things from the example of Mary this morning. The first thing that changes is that the steward tends to view difficulties very differently. The steward tends to view difficulties very differently. Let's just review for a minute the life stage of Mary at this moment. We know from the text that when she receives the message from Gabriel that she is engaged. Now, in that day and time, what that indicates is that she was in the middle of the first stage of a two-stage process. This is how marriage was conducted in the Jewish context. Now, the first stage involved a formal witnessed agreement, legal in nature, There was a financial exchange of the bride's father to the husband and his family, a bride price. And at that moment, then the woman was considered to be legally married. She belonged to the groom. She was his wife. She was even referred to as his wife, even though during that first stage of their marriage, they couldn't spend much time together, certainly not any time alone. That period of the engagement tended to last about a year, and then there would be an official marriage ceremony that would take place, and then after the marriage ceremony is when the groom would actually take the wife into his own home. Now, that first stage could happen as young as the age of 12 in the case of the woman. Even though Luke doesn't give us Mary's age, it's fair for us to assume that she is indeed a young woman. The point is that even though... They were engaged and not technically married. Culturally, legally, they were considered to be married. Now, if you work that out, what that means by implication is that Mary was embarking on a life of rumor, of innuendo, and questions about her character and her fidelity. It would not go unnoticed, in other words, in the community, that Mary was pregnant during a phase of life when she should not have been pregnant. There's an interesting passage later on in one of the Gospels in John chapter 8. You might remember this. In John chapter 8, Jesus At this time, it's 30 or so years later, and Jesus is engaging in this back-and-forth argument with the Pharisees. And the subject of the argument is about their lineage. The Pharisees at that time tended to lean real heavily on the fact that because Abraham was their father, that they had certain rights and privileges that were assigned to them by God. It was their blood right to all of these things. And so in the middle of this exchange in John chapter 8, the Pharisees say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus said back to them, well, if you were really Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do stuff like that. You are doing the works of your own father. And then they respond back, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Now, that is an interesting statement that they make to Jesus, isn't it? It's not too much of a stretch of an imagination to put a little tone behind that statement, as if they are saying, Oh, you you want to call into question our lineage? Well, at least we're not illegitimate children. Which would tend to indicate that Jesus had this reputation that followed him too. A reputation about his mother, a reputation about what she was involved with, a reputation about his own lineage. And if that's the case, 30 years after the fact, can you imagine how many times Mary in her life was subjected to barely heard whispers, to points of her out in a crowd, of people making claims about her own character and fidelity to her husband. And yet, back in Luke chapter 2, before any of that, and sorry, in Luke chapter 1, before any of that gets started, the angel comes to Mary and says, you are highly favored in the eyes of the Lord. Now, among other things, what that tells us, friends, is that being highly favored in the mind of God, does not mean the reduction of difficulties in life. In fact, many times it means that they increase in life. In other words, your circumstances are not an accurate measure of the Lord's favor upon you. But because in this case, Mary believed because of her faith She was moved from a posture of entitlement, which would buck up against the difficulties that were inevitably going to come her way, to a posture of stewardship in which she even greatly rejoiced. Not long ago, I had a really impactful conversation with an older saint in in the congregation where I generally worship, and uh, this woman was in her 80s. And uh, she's had her fair share of all kinds of difficulties, health difficulties, marital difficulties, difficulties with her children, difficulties with all kinds of mental illness. She's had all kinds of difficulties. And I remember in that conversation, she made a very powerful statement as we were talking through her current stage in life. She said, God has trusted me With this. God has trusted me with this. Now, I find that to be a truly unique way to respond to difficulties in life because the tendency when we face difficulties, whether we acknowledge it or not, is to approach those difficulties, at least in part, from the attitude of entitlement. So you think about how might we typically respond when difficulties come into our lives? We would probably do something like ask questions like, why is God allowing this to happen? Or we might say, I don't get what I'm supposed to do. Or we might ask, when is this thing going to be over? Whatever that thing is. And yet, because of her faith, this woman was able to view difficulties differently. She was able to view difficulties from the posture of stewardship. Now, that also makes us re-examine what We mean when we think about stewardship, because typically when we think about stewardship, we think about almost exclusively in terms of money. But stewardship is bigger than that. It's not just about money. It certainly is about that, but it's also about our lifestyle. Because we are stewards of circumstances inasmuch as we are stewards of dollars. But in either case, the Lord has seen fit for this finance or this circumstance to come into our lives. And the question is about what we do with that. I remember in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, Paul the apostle, in reflecting on the nature of difficulties, says this in verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. When thinking about suffering for the sake of Jesus, Paul used the word granted as if it's a gift, as if it's something to be received and then made the most of. From the posture of faith, the way that we approach difficulties is transformed from the posture of faith, when we trust in the goodness of God, in the wisdom of God, in the power of God, when we trust that the Lord truly is sovereign and is operating in all of these circumstances, it allows us to approach our difficulties different, differently, and we're able to begin asking, for what reason has God entrusted this particular experience to me? Why has God given this financial difficulty to me? Why has God entrusted this cancer to me? Why has God entrusted this hard relationship to me? What is he trusting me to do in this situation? Asking that question from the posture of faith moves us from a victim mentality to being a person of action. What do I do with this circumstance that I did not ask for and yet is here nonetheless? This is what faith does practically. It changes the way that we approach circumstances. And it did for Mary. It did for Mary who said, my soul magnifies the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. But not only does faith change the way that we approach our difficulties, faith changes the way that we ask questions. The steward asks questions differently. Now let's zoom out again and compare both of these interactions, the interaction between Zechariah and Gabriel and the interaction between Mary and Gabriel, because there are, again, a lot of similarities. you got a messenger, then you got the delivery of some news, and then you've got a question that's asked. Both cases, same thing, absolutely similar, but then the pattern breaks. The pattern breaks to the degree that Zechariah, when he asked the question, is disciplined for it, and when Mary asked the question, she is applauded for it and even answered So what we can glean from that is evidently there is something behind the spirit of the question that determines what the question is received, how it's received by the Lord. There is, in other words, a genuine kind of seeking that is humble and open-hearted. It's a kind of seeking that is not self-focused, but God-focused. It's a kind of seeking that is built on faith itself, It's a kind of questioning that Augustine would describe as faith-seeking understanding. Now, that's very different than what we find in much of modern evangelicalism today. The posture of entitlement asks a lot of questions, asks a lot of questions. But by and large, the spirit behind those questions from the posture of entitlement is not a genuine desire to understand. It is instead a genuine desire to poke holes. It's a desire to have your own intellect or your own desires or your own doubts to have those things validated. It's not a genuine desire to understand the will and the ways of the Lord. That's the posture of entitlement. And we know that Mary did not have... That posture. And the main reason that we know that is if we scan down to verse 38, that after the news comes, Mary receives it. And what she says is, Well, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. So she believes, she trusts. She knows that the Lord knows what he's doing, even though this thing is mind-blowingly complex and absolutely ununderstandable from the physical intellect point of view. She still is able to say, this thing has come into my life, and I trust the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. This is not the posture of entitlement that demands answers. It's the posture of stewardship that chooses to receive from the Lord and seeks to make the most of it. Friends, when things happen to us, we're going to ask questions. You're going to have questions. You're going to wonder why, when, how, how long. You're going to ask all of these kinds of questions. But the difficult truth, especially in times of real difficulty when you're asking questions, is that oftentimes the Lord does not provide the answers doesn't promise the answers, not even the slight little bit, but the also difficult truth for us to accept is that many times the answer, should we know what it is, is actually not nearly as helpful as we think it's going to be. What we need more than the answers is God himself. I recall the end of the book of Job, someone who knew something about suffering and someone who had a whole lot of questions and actually was allowed to bring his questions into the throne room of God. You go through chapter after chapter after chapter of Job calling God into question, calling his ways into questions, asking all kinds of questions about how and why and when and all these things that are happening. But when you read that entire book of the Bible, there's not one time when God says to Job, well, Job, here's how it happens. See, Satan came into the throne room one day and started asking about somebody who's faithful. The Lord never says that to Job, not once. In fact, in response to all of Job's questions, the only answer that the Lord gives is himself. For the steward, that's the end of our questions. It's not information. It's the God behind all of those questions. So from the standpoint of stewardship, we approach difficulties differently, and we ask questions differently. The third thing that changes from that posture is that we worship differently. Just by way of review again, Mary has received this news. Something's going to happen to her. It's something that's going to change dramatically the course of her life. She will never be the same from this moment on. And yet, because of her faith, the end of this passage is not a complaint, it's not a lament, it's not a series of unending questions demanding explanation. It is a song, and it's a song based in faith. Now, this is a good word for us because we live in a day and time when we are told that what we need to do is to define our own And if we can define what our own truth is, then we can actualize ourselves. And then when we are fully actualized, we can ultimately and finally be happy someday. And yet what we find in the Bible is that truth is not something that is defined. It is something that is received. Mary didn't have the option of defining what her truth was. She was given what the truth is. In the same way, we are all given what the truth is. And what's left for us is how we respond to what the truth is. Will we seek to go around it somehow? Will we seek to puncture holes in it? Will we seek to rebel against it? Or will we lovingly, joyfully, and worshipfully submit ourselves, having received the truth as stewards, underneath the weight of the authority of God's word. That is one of the roots of worship. It is a humble reception of the truth rather than an attempt to circumnavigate it. Worship for the steward is not based on circumstance. It's not based on perception. It's not based on our feelings. It is based on the revelation of who God is and our willing submission to that revelation. That is a challenging mindset for us indeed. Because we live in a world with an entitlement mindset that expects the rest of the world to bow and bend before what we perceive to be true or good or right. But when we are transformed by faith, we understand that the truth is not something we do define. It's something that we submit to in worship. This is what we see from Mary this morning. We see someone who had something incredible happen to her. But because of her faith, she was able to look at difficulties differently, and she asked questions differently, and she worshipped differently. And because she did, we're still telling this story today. But there's part of me that wonders if maybe she told the story too. I mean, surely she herself, as her son was growing up, talked to him about this angel that came and visited her. And of course, she told him stories about his cousin and the way that the angel came and visited them too. And maybe even she went so far in the story as talking about how she felt when the angel came to her. She didn't realize everything that was implied, but she knew that because of what she believed to be true about God, that the only appropriate response And the angel delivered this truth to her was what we find again in verse 38 was to say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And maybe it's not too much of an imagination stretch for us to believe that she told that story not once, but a lot of times to her son. Maybe she told that story so often that those words even hung in his mind, because some 33 years later, when he faced a similar circumstance, his response sounds a whole lot like hers, doesn't it? That Mary said, may this thing that you have told me about, may it be done to me, I am the Lord's servant. And then 33 years later, her son, Knelt in a garden and prayed, Is there any other way for this to happen? But ultimately, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed the same thing. And thank God he did. Because Jesus prayed the same thing and accepted the will of God for his own life, that means that we, with confidence, can have the posture of a steward today because things are going to happen to us as well. And even when things happen to us that are difficult and trying and hard and sad, even when those things happen to us, we can believe because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the God who has, for whatever reason, allowed those things to come into our lives, that He is still loving and He is powerful and He is wise and we can trust Him. Friends, I wonder this morning, is there something that is happening to you this Christmas? Something that you're involved in, something that you didn't ask for, and yet here you are. Then maybe this morning is a good chance for you to reaffirm the fact that you believe in a God who is good, loving, and wise. And maybe a moment for you to reaffirm your commitment that may it be to me, as you have said, the commitment of a steward to embrace what comes from the hand of the Lord and to end in worship. That's the way that we'll end our service this morning. The worship team is going to come back up and we're going to sing a song of response. And as we do, I would encourage you to let those words of Mary ring in your mind, to remember that she, when stuff happened to her, declared that I'm the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. May the same thing be true for us this morning. as We trust in a God who is loving and wise, even in the midst of difficulty. Let's pray together to that end today. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to have a mindset of stewardship rather than a mindset of entitlement. Help us, Lord, by your grace to trust in you. And we pray that our trust in you would influence the way that we look at difficulties, would influence the way that we ask questions, and it would influence the way that we worship. We pray even this morning that as we worship you, that our worship would be based in truth, not in circumstance or feeling or perception or any of those other things, but instead would be based in the revelation of who you are. Lord, we thank you that the whole reason we can worship you is because Jesus too said, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross and paid the price for our sins. And we pray this morning that you would help us. You would help us wholeheartedly, whole-throatedly to worship you, to trust you, to reaffirm that we will receive what you choose to give us and that we will do the best we can to steward it for your glory by your grace. We pray it would be so in Jesus' name, amen.